there's been a lot of talk and very few actually walk in the walk. And Tuminfo has made huge strides towards it. I've, I've seen it firsthand since I got here. We have a program that, he, that he immediately started last year where specific, um, we our HR team has like we have HR business partners for each department and each business partner reached out to like minority groups within the organization to set out a path for career growth immediately. Like we, the company acknowledged like, hey, we don't have a lot of representation across like our different minority groups in leadership positions. Number one, not not even in like the director VP level. So like we need to we need to fix that. Boston, what's up? It's Axer Video. That is the voice of Guy Hudson. Guy is a former classmate of mine at Methuen High School. Absolutely delightful human being. He moved to Methuen at seven years old from Liberia. He escaped a civil war. He tells some stories on the podcast. I think that uh may cause some people to tear up a little bit. It certainly did to me. Um, I'll let you listen and, and decide for yourself. Um, guy is a super resilient dude. He, um, great soccer player, gave up soccer in high school to pursue track, earned a division one track scholarship to the University of Memphis. Um, after being a successful D1 athlete, he went off to uh, a marketing career in Boston, eventually made his way to Acquia, and then even moved out west and implement a lot of great um, digital marketing programs and really a whole digital marketing infrastructure for the Phoenix Suns. Um, he's now back in Boston. He's working at Zoom Info. In addition to his marketing role, um, Guy is really proud of uh, the uh, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives at Zoom Info that he's a part of. And he's also a part of sort of evangelizing. Um, so I'm really excited to share this conversation with the community. Guy's just such a dynamic um dude and and just such a wonderful person um and, and without further ado uh, enjoy the conversation thanks Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Zoom Info's Guy Hudson. Guy, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Zach? I'm doing really well. And listeners won't see this, but um, we're on a Zoom screen because it's wonderful to see your face. And also, you get to see me next to my conjoined twin for the day, Kiel Servideo. <laughs> Keel, say hi to everyone. Hi, everybody. Uh, folks may remember meeting Keel uh, beginning of 2021, first podcast of the year. Uh, Keel and I actually grew up in Methuen with Guy, played soccer with him, and, and have a great relationship with Guy. And I've, I've personally admired his career journey, which we're going to get into um, in a moment. But Guy, I really appreciate you joining us today, just for listeners kind of to orient themselves around what you're doing in the world right now. Can you just describe at a top line what you're up to at Zoom Info? Yeah, well, thank you guys for having me, of course. Always love speaking to you guys as often as I, as often as I can. Uh, so yeah, right now I'm a marketing programs manager at Zoom Info. And my main focus is really around our 
email marketing programs. Like they brought me in to really scale the, the email nurture program and just get all of our like our newsletters, everything email marketing related, get it off the ground um, and just make it a revenue driver. And it wasn't really doing much before. Uh, so that, that's my main responsibility. And it's evolved as I've uh, actually just celebrated my one year anniversary with ZoomInfo earlier this week. And over the past year, it's been quite the ride. I've gotten into a lot of little things with the company, whether it's working on big projects we've had um, and also just gotten a little a bit more digital marketing uh, responsibilities under my belt too, a little bit of web stuff. Uh, so yeah, it, it's been fun and I'm really excited uh, for what's to come with this company. That's great. Uh, I imagine part of the experience that inspires confidence for Zoom Info and more recently, recently before Zoom Info, you're at Acquia, but the experience before that, you were at the Phoenix Suns. And as I understand it and understood it before even chatting with you pre-podcast, the Suns, like a lot of sports organizations in the last decade, were sort of catching up to digital marketing. So it seems like you wore a pretty senior hat at the Phoenix Suns in helping them embrace a CRM email marketing nurture, et cetera, especially because everyone just saw them in the finals, but they weren't good when you were there. So just real quickly, like at a top line, and we we'll, we might get into this a little bit more later, but what was, what was that experience like at the Suns? And like, how do you relate that to helping catapult you into these roles uh, that you've been securing in the Boston sort of B2B tech market? Yeah, the the Suns that was interesting. I was I was actually at Acquia before I went to the Suns, and you know I got that experience in B two B SaaS and and just understanding marketing automation platforms, understanding CRM. And when I got to the Suns, nobody there really knew all that was about, and it blew my mind because I spent you know like a, a few years in the in the the tech world, and I thought this was just common. Like for me, I didn't understand like other industries would just didn't understand it. So I I got to the Suns and a couple months earlier, they hired a couple of CRM analysts and the whole organization was just like, all right, tell us how we're supposed to use these platforms, how we can help our sales team, how we can be more efficient. And stuff that to me that was basic was just brand new to them. So it was awesome to you know get in and really just get that off the ground. Um, being able to create like an email nurture program for them, being able to set the actually have email strategy and not just what they were doing before was like, okay, we're going to just send out this email to everybody in our database, telling them that we have like, we're, we're selling season tickets or like group tickets or whatever. And that was it. Or and every once in a while, there'd be like a, a merchandise email, but there was no strategy for that. For it. There was no real there were no automated processes, no real flow of leads going on from, you know, the marketing automation platform to the CRM and then getting routed to sales reps. Um, and once we got that going, it was just like the, the, the time we saved, number one, was incredible. Um, and then on top of that, just the being able to collect data from our fans and then really targeting our fans with specific types of promotions. Like I think the whole, the ROI that I remember actually being in a meeting, I kid you not, like less than six months into my time there, being in a meeting with the team president and like all the executives just giving a, a like, you know, six months in, here's what we've done. And they're just kind of like, wow, uh, didn't know that all this was possible. And it was, it was 
it was awesome. I was just kind of like, oh wow, you know, I didn't didn't think that this was that hard, but all right, <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> That's great. Well, what's impressive? So, like, I want to like I have a segue from this into sort of your unique childhood because I think it's as a marketer, it's really difficult to do B two B and B two C. But it does translate well when you do B2B, which can sometimes be like harder in ways, but also you can you end up having to embrace tools more deliberately because everything's you know, things are more oftentimes more um, revenue oriented. Um, but what's difficult about B2C is you start having to think about people and being and practicing empathy in your in your digital marketing and having a very unique worldview is really valuable in, in B2C. So, you know, the range, you have a lot of range as a marketer. Like you just look at where you've been. Acquia, Phoenix Suns, Zoom Info. Wow, that's a marketer with a lot of range. Let's talk about where, where some of your range as a human comes from, which, which kind of I think speaks to like where, where you grew up. So Methuen met you as a, as a, as a, as a seven-year-old boy um, that had immigrated from Liberia. Um, so, so you spent the first seven years of your life there. Um, what was it, you know, what do you remember about your, your, your childhood? And can you just describe, I think in the pre-podcast interview, you talked about, um, how you have some faint memories, but you know, if you could just share with listeners, like a little bit about your experience, um, before you moved to the U S. Yeah. So, uh, like you said, I was born in Liberia in the capital city of Monrovia, and it's definitely a, a country that's still developing, um, has its struggles, but I remember some, some, like, you know, good times with my family. I had a, have a really, really big family. So we were always together, uh, doing everything together and we just appreciated, you know, simple life. Um, and it was, it was fun for the most part. But then of course there were some very unfortunate times that the country went through a very long civil war. So it was, it just wasn't safe being around there. And that's why I saw a lot of kind of wouldn't call a major exodus, but a lot of people just wanted, needed to be in a safer place. So um, it's eventually my family members started leaving, coming to America, maybe going elsewhere in Africa. But I I don't remember a whole lot, but one of my fondest memories was just, um, my mom worked at a a bank in the capital city and she would, I just had her schedule like memorized, like when she would leave, when she would get home and I knew there was the exact spot that like a taxi would drop her off at the end of each day. And I like, when it got close to time, I would just like run out there and just stand in this spot at the edge of our street and just wait for her, like to get out of the taxi. And I used to be so happy just to see her at the end of each day. It was it definitely, was just like, it's a very small thing, but I, I, I think out of all the memories I have from Liberia, that's one that I'll never forget. Um, I just be, be so excited when she got home each day and just to see her. That's great. Um, That's a beautiful image. I mean, you grew up during your home country's civil war, but your enduring image is your mother coming home to you. Like, I love that. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, I'm kind of looking at Keel for this one. It reminds me, uh, there's only small fragments of like our early childhood that I remember, but I picture dad in a brown UPS uniform coming home from work at 7 p.m., We'd usually already eaten dinner. He'd been gone for 12 hours, working his butt off, delivering packages, smile on his face. Usually it stopped at the local convenience store for scratch tickets mm-hmm. and some sort of candy bars for us. Yeah. And uh, 
that's one of the most clear memories I have. You, you know what I'm talking no, about? No, yeah, I, I, I think about that often when I picture childhood, and it's always such like a nice thing to see your parent at the end of the day. And like, I wonder how much more it means when you're maybe in the situation that you were in in Liberia. And I know your memories aren't super vivid, but like, do you remember feeling a sense of I'm in a dangerous situation? Did you feel close to any of the conflict? Yeah, it's um, one thing I I vaguely remember, but I do definitely also sticks with me is we had to move around a lot um, during like the peak of the conflict. So one thing that was interesting, and this is common with the civil wars in most like African countries, other third world countries is it has like its ups and downs where the fighting gets really heated and it gets close to, it starts out in the outskirts of the country and it comes to the capital city. Um, and once we would hear it was getting close, most people knew like the best case scenario was to just leave. So you just leave your home, just pack things up, leave your home, get as far away from the, like where the danger is coming. Um, and we would do that. I think it was like every, so the war lasted 15 years just to for some context. Um, off and on for 15 years. And most times when it got close, the fighting got close where we were, we would leave our home and just, you know, hope we didn't get caught up in like the middle of anything. Uh, there was one time, some people would just would stay though and, and wait it out. And there was one time where we, I remember us waiting it out and you could actually hear like the, like whether it was the government soldiers or like the, or the rebels, you could hear them outside your home. And every once in a while, if you're extremely unlucky, they would actually break into your home and tell you like, we're taking over your home and nothing you can do about it. This is going to be like our hiding spot. Um, and there were times where we definitely like heard them get close and you just kind of sit there and hope for the best. And I think, I don't know, I remember one of, one of my other, my not so fond memory was actually looking, peeking out the window and just seeing like a group of them just hanging out like right outside our window. And for me, I was like, well, this could be it. Like at any point they could come in and who knows what happens at that point. So um, yeah, it was definitely extremely <laughs> terrifying. Um, and we were very lucky because there were a lot of people that didn't make it out of that war. So uh, that's that's why, like, I just, uh, and I think it's something that, like, as, as we keep talking, you, you'll hear me probably mention this, like, me, my, my mentality, my motto of just, like, you know, things could always be worse than the situation I'm in now because, like, I, I know what, how close I came to, like, you know, not making it out of there, so... Yeah, that was, yeah it was, it's crazy. And you're not being dramatic. That is, I would, I would describe that as a traumatic experience, seeing soldiers outside your home and having the thought. I mean, so you're, that was before you were seven, so four, five, six years old, and the thought's crossing your mind, this may be it. Like, that's, that's a really sad thought for anyone to have to have, but never mind, like, a child who's, who's developing. Right. So given that situation in your family's eyes, and maybe you were too young to really have a say in this, but like, was the idea of America, the fantastical American dream version that, you know, some groups, like I think our Italian ancestors, like they came at a time when it was that very fantastical, this country can be a lot better than the poor mountain villages of Calabria and Sicily, where our people come from. Um, For you, was it that? Was it this like, shining city on a hill or was it a place where we can be safe away from civil war do you remember any of that like your conception yeah. of where you could go next it, it was definitely it's definitely both actually it was number one like this will be safer at least like on a day-to-day basis and then 
yeah, there's opportunity there. I think they were, at that time specifically in Liberia, there was zero opportunity if you weren't already in an, a family that was established and like doing something. Um, you just kind of, you know, hoped you'd hope for the best as you like grew up, but we knew we had to get out. And luckily for us, you know, having family members that had left, I know actually not too long after I was born, we had family members that had left and, and were in America. And they, I mean, they, they would tell us like, you know, we, yes, we need to try to get as many people here as we can, because this is, you know, this is the situation, the only way we can really like progress probably in, in, in life. So that was the view to me and to everybody in my family, everybody in the country, really. I'm thinking about, this is giving me such a, like, we've never had this conversation. This is like, really, I appreciate you sharing the, the your, and it's almost like more story, like more stories and visions are coming out than even what we were talk, discussing, like pre-podcast. And it's just giving me a broad, like a, like, I guess maybe keener um sense of just what the trying to just guess what the juxtaposition must have been coming from Liberia to Methuen, Massachusetts. And I'm curious what that change was like for you. Um like do you remember like like getting off the plane? Do you remember arriving in Methuen? Like where did you first live and do you remember your first day of school like what was that what was that ex- experience like coming to the united states yeah i mean it was that's a that experience was i do remember it very vividly like getting here so the journey here first of all was was long i think uh so my mom and i came together and it was my mom's my grand aunt that uh, and, and uncle that kind of like went through the process of getting us here and we first had to spend a week in our um, neighboring country, Ivory Coast, because uh, like planes didn't fly in and out of Liberia every day, and planes didn't really like go in and out of West Africa in general every day. So when you wanted to book flights, you just had to kind of take what was available, and they could be multiple flights spaced out across like days or weeks, really. Um, so we went to uh, Ivory Coast, spent almost like a week there, and then we flew straight from the Ivory Coast to um, into Boston. And I remember we came. It was December 16th of 1996. And so it's winter time, right? Pretty much. And it's like so cold. I've never experienced anything. I remember it being in the airport. Um, my family, like they came to get us and just gave me like a jacket. They're like, you're going to need this. And so I put, I put this jacket on and it still wasn't enough to prepare me for, for stepping outside into that cold. And that just... I think I was like, I was actually kind of upset because I just thought like, okay, like we're here and I'm looking around like, okay, cool. There are buildings like this is, this looks nice, but like, oh my God, is this weather what it's going to be like all, every day? <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we I, I get through that and um, I think the, what I had to really just get used to was getting into school and, and meeting people, meeting Americans was number one, realizing that oh my God, like they can't understand me. And I had a really, really heavy Liberian accent. We, we speak English in Liberia, but it's like a, it's a certain like dialect. And it's de- definitely when you hear in us talk, it's not, you don't think you're hearing English, but it, it's, it's English if we slow it down. Um, so like people couldn't understand me. I had to really like think about how I was speaking. Um, and I mean, luckily I was young. So, you know, now I started picking up things when I was in school, like picking up 
slangs and picking up the ways like like Americans speak. Um, things like, oh, when they say guys, they're not talking to me and accidentally adding an S, they're actually talking to like a group of people. So that was interesting. Um, and I got, I have a very lucky, actually one of a guy who's still one of my best friends to this day was first friend I made in this country, met him in second grade. And like, he was so nice to me, uh, just really helped me get used to things, really explain things for me. Um, and it was, it was great because I know a lot of immigrants don't get that. And, and it's, it's not even, I wouldn't even say it's common to just have one or two people that just embrace you and just really want to make you comfortable. And I was lucky enough to have that. And it helped my assimilation into like American culture become a lot easier. And, and I, I could just lean on like this, this kid. And my mom also like made friends immediately, but well, she's really good at making friends. Like you, you guys like met her, like she's easy to talk to. But she made friends really quickly. Uh, and so that combination of like people she met, people I met, like it's it made it like it wasn't it wasn't I would say easy, but a lot more comfortable than I think like a lot of immigrants will experience. Do you, do you feel like you can recall a point where you started to feel like I'm a part of this community, this is where I live, this is my home, like, you know, I'm not just like the new the new guy from Liberia. I am an American who is a part of this, this place. Yeah. Um, funny enough, it was when I started playing soccer, when I actually felt that because I was, you know, playing on a team really just cause you guys know it. Like when you use sports, it's the whole team and like the te- each player's family is like everybody that like, gets to know each other, everybody that like you make friends with them, you go, you end up hanging out with them. Um, and that team becomes like almost like a family to you as well. And you just get so used to people and, and and they really, you have a sense of community there. So that's what helped me a lot. I think once I started doing that and I started making friends through soccer and I, I started like getting invited to like sleepovers and like birthday parties. And that's one for me, I was like, okay, like I'm feeling good here now. I, I feel like I, I belong here. These people are making me feel like I belong here. and. It, it's started to get real comfortable at that point. This is a ringing endorsement for the beautiful game. It is. Yeah. So, it <laughs> sounds like soccer and the community and sort of the, the social nurture that you experienced in Methuen probably best helped you assimilate into uh, the United States and specifically sort of your suburban Massachusetts community. Um, what was it like in the school system? Like, did, like when your speech was initially the way it was and you needed to um, sort of learn how to speak more American, quote unquote, like, was there, was there assistance on that end or was it really more like peer to peer kind of like, and then peers of your, of your mom who was quickly becoming a socialite? Like, is that more where you were getting that help or, or and how challenging was it? in school or did you, you know, did, did it not take you too long to start excelling in school as well? Yeah, that was actually interesting because when I first was enrolled into uh, school, they wanted to originally put me in like an ESL class. They wanted to actually, so I was ahead of myself and says, as far as grades go, like I was for my age, they said, okay, he should be in first grade, but I, in Liberia, we have a similar like, um, system as far as like grades go and I was in second grade coming to 
the United States. So my mom actually went to school. Was like, hey, he's already at second grade level, um, and they just felt like I would struggle if I if I went to second grade right away, and I should take an ESL class, like go to first grade, and then um, just develop that way. But they, I mean, I was I knew like as far as the school system in, in Liberia, we it was all private schools really, um, and not everybody got the chance to go to school. But I, I was lucky enough to go to school. But when you do go to school there, it's 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 like fairly good. Like you you can you learn similar things you learn here. So I knew the material, and when I would look at like a book and like I could I could read the English language, of course, um, read and write the English language. That wasn't a huge issue. So once I actually started going through like classes and getting like doing the work, they realized pretty quickly like okay, like this kid like he knows what he's doing. You know, as far as communication. Yes, there had to be work done there. I had to understand some terminology that wasn't familiar to me. And then I had to also work to make sure they could understand me. Um, but as far as the material and doing the work, that wasn't really an issue. So I, I got used to that pretty quickly. And, and I was able to get, you know, come and go into second grade and, and do just fine with the schoolwork itself. Cool. I want to tee up my brother here who is still a bit heartbroken over you uh, pausing your soccer career for cross country. <laughs> Kiel, do you want to ask a question on this? Yeah. Why did you break my heart and ruin my <laughs> high school career? No. So, uh, so Zach was the captain when I was, you know, an underclassman of the of Methuen High's team. And then I became the captain my junior and senior years. And admittedly, I did come to view certain other people in my soccer orbit as simply commodities and what they could mean for my team's success and how they could fit into the field. And Guy was a part of that vision. And then was it going into your junior year that you made a very, I mean, in the end, I think it's the right decision, but you made a decision to pivot away from soccer, which you've already said was a critical part of your life, uh, in order to focus solely on cross country um, in the, as a fall sport along with your winter and spring track. So first of all, how dare you? Second of all, um, I actually do want to applaud you. I think that was an incredibly mature decision for you to make at that age. And it proved to be the right one. So do you want to maybe just talk a little bit about that? Because soccer was, and still is, I know you still love it because we played together recently. You were now a few years ago, it feels like recently you were in LA and we played. So do you want to talk about like what brought you to that decision and, and then where that decision led you? Yeah. So I, it was really hard. As you guys know, like I love, that's my favorite sport. Soccer is my favorite sport. Always has been, always will be. Um, I play every chance I get. Um, so yeah, it was going into my junior year when I like stepped away from soccer. And the, for that, that decision was bad because I actually played football that year. And that was, Terrible decision. Looking back at it, I wasted a whole year of my high school career playing football. Like I was fast. I had become fascinated with with football, right? So I just was like, you know, uh, this seems really interesting. I want to give it a shot. Um, and I was watching it like crazy. It, it really climbed up my list of favorite sports. Uh, didn't really work out like I thought it would. I don't know why I thought it would work out. And then it was so after that football season, I went like. I was like, okay, I'm not doing this again next year. Like my senior year, I'm going back to soccer. Um, and I was all set to actually go back to playing soccer. And it was 
after my the end of my junior year, I qualified for the state championship meet in outdoor track, and I went to the state meet and actually ran pretty well. Um, and now, by at that point, I was still ready to play soccer in the fall, the following fall. And the track coach, after like that that meet, came up to me and was like, "Hey, like I know you said you're going to play soccer in the fall, but like, what if you ran cross country?" Um, you know, you, instead of spending your indoor track season, getting back into track shape only to like, you know, waste indoor track and then be in shape for outdoor track, you could go into indoor track already in your top, top shape and like top running shape. And you could really have a big senior year in indoor and outdoor track. And I kind of just like, was like, whatever at first I was like, nah, I don't want to run cross country. That's, that's too long. <laughs> and, and, um, Throughout the summer, as I was going to like these camps, these soccer camps and playing these pickup games with like the Methuen High soccer team um, with everybody thinking like guys playing soccer. And here he is like during the summer, totally preparing for soccer season. There was one point where I got a letter in the mail from like a college. It was it was like a random college in Pennsylvania, like talking about, about track, like, you know, it was a recruiting letter for track. And I was like, oh, and then like a few more came in and I was just like, oh, I think like, it sounds like I have a chance here to run track in college. Um, and the more I started to look like thinking about that, I thought about what my coach said, like if I ran cross country and I was already peak running shape going into indoor track season, I could have a big year and I could really like, I could take off on, on, on the track. So that's when I, that that was the point, I, essentially when I when I saw the opportunity where college track was very much a possibility that's when I decided cross country was the better decision to put to put me in the best position possible to really excel my senior year in track and maybe even get like a like better offers and and, and really um take off on, on the track for sure I remember that summer because like I, I I remember I think I was the guy putting those games together back then what year what year was this because I think I was even back living home because I was playing with the team still so if it was if it was when you were going into your senior year, I think it would have been summer of five so it was yeah. after I graduated um yeah. and I remember you hadn't played junior year so you could have been receiving long balls I, I pictured you coming up the wing and Guillermo and I at central mid just flipping <laughs> you long runs yeah and then maybe you dish it off the tech our, our, one of my other teammates, but what an international group we had in in. It was. I was talking about like Guillermo was he Guatemalan? Guillermo yeah. was Guatemalan. Was Texas Korean American. Yeah, I mean, when you, when I you don't said, think a lot of people listening to the podcast realize what a melting pot Methuen is. And and sorry to no no no. That in, and you're right. And when Guy was saying how soccer was that experience for him, that kind of made him feel a part of the community. I realized like there's a lot of people in our community that I would have had less interaction with had it not been. <laughs> for soccer and basketball as well, but like certainly soccer and it, and it does bring people together. And like, you can't play soccer together and like have an issue with where somebody came from. Like, cause you just have that cohesion. But I do remember that summer cause there was, you were, we were recruiting you, man. And even though I was gone, like I still cared about Mathieu and high soccer. I still wanted you to play. And there, we were always pushing you and, and you, again, like I applaud the decision. Like you recognize that like, yeah, maybe I love soccer and maybe I'd really like to play soccer. And like, I don't know, maybe you had even had more friends on the soccer team. And I don't know who wants to run cross country. Cause like, I remember when I first learned, like, it's just running. So yeah. what do you do? <laughs> you run, you run to one side of the town and then you run back to the high school. Um, and we were just every time like, Hey, get guy, you're going to play. And you were, you were, you always had a smile. You kind of played coy in the beginning, but 
ultimately you made that choice and it leads to what comes after high school. So um, tell us about why you picked where you went to school, where you went to school and why. And then um, I guess like what that experience was like going there because it, it, it involves yet another drastic change of environment. Maybe not as drastic as going from Liberia to the frigid winter of New England, but still a, a change. From the Northeast to the, to the Southeast. I mean, in yeah. West, in more like West Tennessee, that's a different, Memphis is a different place. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, sure is. Um, so yeah, it was, I think throughout senior year, it was like that indoor track season, my senior year where um started having more uh, college coaches reach out. And then, then it became at this point. So this is where cross country did, I guess, kind of help because according to the indoor track season, I was in amazing shape and the division one coaches started reaching out now. So university of Memphis stuck out. Um, they weren't one of the early ones for sure. But as soon as like I started communicating with them, they stuck out because number one, they were really building the, the coach went into like, this is the team we're building. This is kind of, we've been historically just a group of like, you know, the field events were great. Sprinters were okay, but they didn't really have, I was a middle distance runner. Like, like, you know, we're building this part of our team now. We think it could be a big part of it. And I knew very early on, I was going to go away from the Northeast for college. Like I, I wanted, like, I wanted adventure. I wanted to see another part of the country. I wasn't just going to be, you know, someone that stayed in the exact, that there's anything wrong with it, but I didn't want to stay in the exact same spot I grew up in for the rest of my life without seeing something else along the way. So Memphis for me was perfect. It wasn't too far away from home, but it was far enough in a different place. Um, and I remember visiting there and just like the food was amazing. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. I know it's, it's, it's division one, like it's going to be a challenge. Um, and it's just a school that I feel like they embrace sports here. Um, and yeah, it was exciting. And then I got there and the, I immediately, like, it took a matter of probably a couple months to realize the huge jump from high school sports to division one college sports. It was brutal. <laughs> I like, I think in, in high school, like, I mean, it wasn't easy, but I would, you know, go through school, go after, after school, go to practice, like. I have some hard practices here and there and, you know, the race was tough, but then like, it's whatever. Uh, college was like, all right, wake up early, like go do some sort of like strength training. Um, it's like 6 a.m., go through classes, like eat lunch, get to practice, like, you know, run really hard, run, like for throughout every, almost every practice. And I think my real like welcome to college sports moment, uh, college track and field moment was one practice specifically where it was it was so hard the whole time it was so hard like the rest in between each interval was so short and i remember at the very end of it we do like a cool down job to to just kind of like you know just calm, calm ourselves down and we stretch and i told like my coach my team I was like yeah i just gotta go to like the locker room use the bathroom real quick i had like i you know i had to have to pee or whatever and I went into the locker room and I was so, I was so dead tired. I've never been this tired in my life. I just laid on the locker room floor for like 20 minutes. I just laid there. <laughs> like my whole body was just hurting. And uh, my, my, my hamstrings felt like they were just going like to like catch on fire any moment. And I was just laying there like, can I do this? <laughs> like, what is, what is this? This is crazy. Like, why did I sign up for this? But once it's something that once I got used to it and it, um, it was crucial because I think that was, the point for me where I actually like a light bulb went off like, Hey, this is life. Like this is not, it's not just 
track isn't just the only hard thing you're going to encounter. This isn't going to be the only moment in your life where you're going to ask yourself, like, can I do this? Or like, what did I sign up for? That was where, that was a turning point for me where I was just like, all right, when you have these very challenging moments, you really have to be mentally tough. And that that's where sports has always put the mental toughness in me, put the ambition in me and, and, and make myself truly like believe in myself um, and, and just keep repeating like, yes, yes, you can do this. Just keep on focusing. So that's, uh, that's really like the key part of my college experience that like running track was a great time. Like being in college, the whole experience was cool, but track and field, being a college athlete, just really instill that discipline um, and confidence in me. That's a key word. You just use discipline. I feel like that's yeah. kind of the, the a recipe for success in life is discipline. I think it's something I personally learned during the pandemic. And I think a lot of us probably did because um, it was very challenging at times, right? Like, okay, I can't go see my friends. Okay. I can't go work out at a gym. Okay. It's really cold in the winter here. And this was like the discipline of creating habits in like the structure that you lived in so that you could like be mentally and physically strong to, you know, succeed each day and to, and to have the discipline to find that way to work in, in your home, um, and be productive, um, while also being like, you know, mentally happy and positive, uh, all comes down to discipline. I have a fun follow-up question to that riff you were just on, which was beautiful. Tell me, tell Keel and I and listeners about the food that you experienced in Tennessee when you were like, damn, they don't have this up in New England. <laughs> oh man, the first thing, like, I mean, we've all had barbecue, like you get your ribs you, and your pulled pork, but like Memphis is, it, a, lot of, a lot of cities in America like to claim they're the best barbecue, but I'm I'm still rolling with Memphis for the best barbecue I've ever had. Um, and it's just oh, it's so good. I, I can't, I, I could honestly, that's, that's, we could have a whole other conversation about just nice. how, how good their, their barbecue is. Um, so they had that. And then just like, it was my first real introduction to really like Southern, like soul food too. Just, yeah. it's not good for you, but man, it's delicious. And uh, you know, just going out and, anywhere you can just grab like a plate of just like some really good chicken and cornbread and, and all that stuff. And, uh, and, and it honestly it was difficult because as a, as an athlete, you can't just eat that every day. Right. You have to really do your best. I think by my freshman year, I, I was eating that way too much. And I eventually was like, all right, guy, calm down. You have to, you have to relax. Um, it, it was good. And then one thing I learned too about Memphis very quickly was the people, the culture there, they really, if they understand it, it's 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 unfortunately a city that that struggles economically. Um, it's definitely, you know, the the, the crime rate is 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 not it's, it's up there more than they probably wanted to, and and it's 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 tough because you see the culture, you see how happy people like are, but then you know also like they're struggling with a lot. Um, and I think that was also my big realization because you know growing up in Methuen, Massachusetts in general, I think. I didn't realize how good we really have it here until I went to Memphis and was like, this is a whole nother reality there. Like people um, in like the, the South and, and other parts of the country just have a whole different reality from what we're used to in the Northeast or what some people you saw West or not. Um, so that was eye opening to me. Like the, you, you can be in America and feel like you're in another country at times. Um, and that, that, that kind of will open my eyes but also made me want to explore even more because I'm like, what else is out there? Like what else can I learn about this country? 
Yeah, I'm curious. Like, were you ever in a a position in Memphis, like out in the city, where you felt unsafe? Uh so fun facts. Well, not so fun facts. Like two months into my college experience in Memphis, uh, one of the football players actually like got shot outside his dorm. Uh, it was it was crazy. I think like. And the, the part where the university was, it was one of like the safer parts of the city, um, you know, that immediate like perimeter of the university, at least. And once you left it, you know, things got a little sketchy. But yeah, that happened like two months in, kid you not. And I'm just like, oh, my God, like this, like people weren't kidding. Like it, it's, it was really crazy out here. Uh, and I think you, you a lot of times like just driving through the city, go to certain parts, you just want to use think it's up there, just get through it, just get through it, don't stop, just get through it. Um, and it's really unfortunate because there is a lot going on, even in those areas, there are spots where like, you know, they, where they have good food, they have like some good nightlife, but you just don't want to like, you know, be caught in a bad situation. So you kind of bypass a lot of communities within Memphis um, just with that thought in your head that, you know, something could go wrong at any moment. Um, so yeah, I, I would say there were, Oftentimes where I was just like, I end up, I think after my first couple of years, I just realized like, you know what, I'm going to stay in as much as I can focus on like school and track. And cause I was ready to like hit the nightlife when I first got there. <laughs> um, but after like a year or so, I was just like, all right, let me, let me relax. Cause I, I don't know, things are crazy, but which is unfortunate because there's a lot of good things about the city of Memphis too. Um, and, and I, and I did genuinely enjoy it. Yeah. Sounds like you had to exercise some, some caution. And I think rightfully, rightfully so. So when you graduate, you end up, were you sort of, were you yearning for, for home in Boston and, and cause you went to Acquia and then like talk about like what your options were and what you were thinking you wanted to do with your career and talk about sort of that, like that sort of first move after Memphis. Um, and then maybe even take us to like what that, job was for you what it what it wasn't and like ultimately that pull of sports that seemed to to tug you uh out west yeah so immediately after graduating uh it took i will admit it took me a while to accept that like my track and field career was over the way the way it ended was not how i wanted it to end um i had actually barely missed qualifying for like the um the regional ncaa regional championships um but I was also at the same time in contact with the person that ran the uh, like, like the Liberian national track and field team. Um, and that year later that summer was, they were going to be the, what they call the all Africa games where it's just like, you know um, it's like Olympics in Africa. It was just Africa. Right. Um, and I was taught, there were talks like I was going to represent Liberia at the All Africa Games, like in track and wow. field. And like everything was said, like they were, they like asked me, you know, for like my uniform sizes, like asked me about like availability when I could like get up. Cause I think it was in um, Mozambique, I believe was the country it was in. They were just talking about like, you know, travel arrangements. And then like at the last minute, they emailed me back and was like, oh, the funding we anticipated for this wasn't happening so instead of taking like the 20 track and field athletes we were intended to take we're only taking four now because of like funding issues so like you know i was one of the people cut from that and but i still was like okay like this point is 2011 right i'm like 
maybe if I just keep training, try to do some, some like super, like get into some meets. And then if I could hit like a really, if I can reach like a really good time in my event, maybe I can get, they can take me to Olympics 2012. And I was like, who knows? Like, let me train for that. Um, it didn't end up working out. It was, I realized very quickly training by itself and track it was extremely hard and I was making no progress. So then that's when I was like, all right, you know, let me, let me focus on my, my career, like track and field. I shouldn't bank on this. It's not, it's not a lucrative career until you're really winning big meat. So I was like, all right, that's when I started, you know, get, get on the workforce. My first gig actually, believe it or not, was a basketball coach at a private school in Chestnut Hill, right near Boston College. Um, yeah, this guy I went to University of Memphis with, who was from, um, it's from the South Shore in Masters. I forget the exact time, somewhere, not Brockton, but right, in that, uh, right around Brockton. He had like, knew someone that was uh, running the athletic department at this school. And he just like, hit me up. He was like, hey, I need an assistant coach for this, like, this high school freshman team. And so I was like, sure, man, I'm not doing anything right now. I need to make some money. <laughs> so I did that. I was, uh, I was never coached basketball before, but he was like, don't worry. Like, you know, you just like, you know, the sport enough. We play together before, like, just use your, your, your knowledge of the sport. So that was cool. Like did that for like a year. Um, and then got into, um, I was then working for the marketing and development department of, the. Uh, the Goodwill offices in Boston, um, did that for a year. And that actually led me into then that, that introduced me essentially to this like marketing in general, and then getting into, uh, the B2B side, eventually it landed at Acquia. Uh, and that was my first step into like, you know, software and like getting the SaaS and getting to B2B. Uh, and it was just like, it was, it was awesome. I was like, man, this is, this is cool. Like, you know, I knew about technology and stuff like that, but just learning all these different technologies, uh, how to market them, build a lot of skills at Acquia. I actually owe a lot to that company because it was the size of the company was like small enough to where you, each person had a good amount of responsibility, but big enough to where you weren't completely overwhelmed. Um, and, and you had enough of like, your role was focused enough on like, one or two things to where you could manage it. You can manage the workload. So um, that helped me out a lot because then that led me into going to the Phoenix Suns and then just unleashing like all like this, just like just introducing them to, you know, CRM, marketing automation, stuff like that. And like that, and I got all that from Acquia and, and, you know, Mark managing a database. <laughs> like it, it was something I learned there too, that, that then I took to, the sons and just was able to really then take on a lot of responsibility there. Um, and that's really what helped me boost my resume big time to, to get into where I am now as human. Did you, do you feel like you took all of the dedication and discipline that you had been applying to, to athletics for a while? And now that you had begrudgingly accepted that, that kind of, um, not that like you're, you're never stopped being an athlete, like, you know, but that majority focus of your life now needed to be put elsewhere. Do you feel like it was as, it was as simple as let me pivot and now put heart and soul into a profession versus putting heart and soul into track? Yeah, for sure. The, uh, the, the discipline part of um, understanding what I had to do and focusing on doing it also just 
like when you go in, like with track and field and soccer, everything is like, I wanted to be really good. I didn't just do things to do things. Like I want to be good. And so once whatever I got into in my professional life, I, you know, put a lot of effort into just be really good at it. And also you guys know, like I played multiple sports growing up and like, even though I had one that ultimately I did in college, I'd still like this idea of being versatile and then just being able to do multiple things and do it well. Uh, not, not just like, it's good to like, you know, master one thing, but I also did enjoy just like having this wide range of skills. So um, that was something I got from sports. And then also the idea of most crucial for me is the idea of working hard for a team, right? Understanding is it's, it's bigger than just you. Um, you have an ultimate goal that a whole group of people are working towards and you got to work hard for the team. Uh, that's something that can immediately be taken from athletics and in, into any sort of um, professional um, career. So I always told myself, like, you know, if nothing else, like understand that this is bigger than you and you, if you don't let like your teammates down, uh, you, you, you can't, regardless of how hard you work, ultimately you need other people too, to, to be there with you and support you and, and work hard for you as well to, to be, to reach peak success. You can't just do it all alone. So that's something I got from sports and I always apply every single time for everything I do really that involves like a team. I agree. I agree with that. Like I, I started to realize in my twenties that my, one of the roles outside of like my just the hard set of things I was doing for my job, but like kind of like soft skills. One thing I was bringing to my workplace was what I brought to a soccer field, which was how do I help this person do their job better? Um, how can this person help me do my job better? And how can I like coerce these pieces into a more, uh, congealed force that will function better than if we're all just doing our own thing because and i mean i played multiple sports as well but soccer was certainly my main one but in soccer like it doesn't if 11 people on the field are doing 11 different things you're not going to play well but if you have uh if you have some chemistry if you understand each other if like you know when to send somebody on a run like you're going to function better so like yeah through sports you absolutely learn um incredible skills that get to be uh, useful in a workplace. I think one of the things um, is just to kind of add, like add to that and kind of play off what you were um, just saying about sort of being, you're basically describing being a generalist guy, which, which I think is a lot of modern marketers that are successful now and will be successful in the future, which like we talked about this a bit before the podcast, like, folks that are listening to this that are maybe young people that are, Hey, like I kind of like, I like innovation. I like entrepreneurship. Like Boston's got a strong tech scene. Like maybe I'll be a founder someday. Like, you know, who are a lot of great founders and do really well in innovation marketers. Like my friend who would ran marketing at coach up rents my old place in LA and is the CEO of pistol Lake and listeners know him because I've had him on the podcast, Ryan light, badass, great marketer. Good marketers that are generalists, like generalists used to kind of have like a bad term, like, oh, like I'm a generalist. I'm a Swiss army knife. I can do a lot of things. Like, okay, like, can you do anything really good? Yeah. Like I'm a generalist that can specialize in CRM and in PR and storytelling and in brand building and in video production. Like, oh, okay. Um, so I think, you know, it's, you can specialize in one thing, but unfortunately the way that the world is and the way and maybe where the business world is, it's is such that 
so many things that have to be interconnected at a business, whether it's B2B or B2C. <clears throat> so if it's, you know, building a brand does mean using a CRM to communicate to an audience certain messages, but you also have to go outside of the audience you have to capture new audience. And so you have to do different types of awareness things. And I think for folks that are listening that um, maybe don't think of themselves as marketers yet, I would encourage them too. And if they think of themselves as marketers, I would push them to think more as a generalist because I think that sort of Swiss army knife kind of generalist mindset with, with the ability to specialize, but the humility to acknowledge what, where they are not specialized is fine. And that's, and, and so I'm curious, like, you know, feel free to respond to any of that and sort of relate that to when you were like, why did you leave the sun's? Why did you take the specific role at Zoom Info? Let's talk about sort of like the role itself first. And then I also want to talk about the Zoom Info culture, which I think is has an admirable culture um, and has some really, really neat initiatives that, that you're a part of. Yeah, so um, the time of the Suns is awesome. I think I grew a lot as a professional, learned a lot of things, um, got to really work with a lot of different uh, departments. And it... it it built me up. So there were, as far as leaving the Suns goes, like there were a couple reasons and I really enjoyed my time there. I wasn't, I think the time when I left, I didn't really, you know, if you had told me a year before, like, oh yeah, like you're going to take off at like next year, probably wouldn't have believed it. But I realized a couple of things. Number one, of course, we were in a pandemic and it was actually really uh, like worrisome time for anyone in the entertainment industry, any, any sort of industry that just fed off, you know, people being in a place watching your product. Um, so it just kind of felt like, okay, I'm lucky. I have my job. How long is this going to last though? So that was always in the back of my mind. I was, I'm not going to lie. I lost a lot of sleep over it. I'm just every day, you know, all oh, this, this other team laid off like half their staff. Like you just kind of thinking like, when, when am I next? Um, and then there was another thing for me too, where I thought about, I started thinking about growth potential, right? You know, I, I I was lucky enough, like halfway through my time there, I, I did get promoted, got to, you know, manage a, a coordinator and that was great and great experience. But then I realized like, okay, my next step here is my boss's job. Like that's where I want to be next, right? Um, and I was, you know, waiting it out and just kind of like buy my time and keep learning. That was something that I was willing to do, but at the same time, I had all these other thoughts about other skills that I wanted to develop, um, other type of experiences I, I wanted to have to really make sure I was prepared to be, you know, go be like a director, right? And I thought to myself at the same time, like, I do miss home as well. The pandemic really made me miss home. I mean, I was missing home before that, but Man, I was living a pandemic. I was just like, you know, you're, you're calling your family and you're just thinking like, you're nervous. Like, what if one of them gets sick? What if I get sick? What if something happens? Like, I'm across the country. Um, that was the plan of mine. So my wife and I, we talked about like coming back to Massachusetts and we, it's something we definitely wanted to do before the pandemic. We were going to wait it out another couple of years, but when the pandemic hit, we're like, all right, let's, let's make our way back. Like, let's find, like, we go to our connections, see what we can do. And I had a lot of connections in the tech scene here in Boston. So I was able to reach out a bunch of different people, found this, this gig with, with Zoom Info. And what excited me about Zoom Info immediately was 
number one, the, the job, I look at the job description and I look at the different things I'd be able to do and like the type of team I would be on. And I thought, okay, this is like, you know, demand generation. I know for sure, like that's something I want to be great at. Um, and then I, I, so that stuck out to me and it just so happened as soon as I was interviewing, the company went public. And so that was exciting as well. I was like, okay, this is a company that really has a great future. They're, they're going public. Um, I know the pressure that, that comes with that being in a public company, but at the same time, it was a pressure I wanted. Uh, so it, it ended up being a no brainer. And I was lucky enough, you know, I got, I got through the interview process. Like I got this job and immediately when I got here, they told me with expectations, they asked me what, what I like felt like I wanted to accomplish and everything just lined up. So it was, um, yeah, it just from the start, it was awesome. I, I'm blessed with a really good, uh, manager too. He's, he's supporting me every day, um, gives me creative freedom. And so I'm just like, yeah, it, it's, a, it's been a really, really good situation. And, and honestly, not everybody gets that. So I'm definitely like thankful for it. I love, I love your use of the phrase, it was the pressure I wanted. Because in the end, life is going to bring challenges and there's going to be pressure. And it's like, if you can have some say in the type of pressure you take on, the type of situations, challenging situations you're going to face, because you know yourself. Uh, and also, like, I'm not surprised you'd use that term because you've challenged yourself at like, every step. So like, of course, like, you probably would thrive more in this type of pressure-filled environment than you would where everything is kind of steady status quo. Um, so I love that because yeah. I've met people who, from the outside, have really good lives, good jobs, but like there was a feeling inside them because I drove Uber, so I have like a lot of conversations with people about what they do. But if you're feeling like you're not choosing that path, the good and the bad that comes with it, doesn't matter. So I love that you know you're in a situation right now where it's like, it's where you want. And there's like, there's autonomy there. That's important. Yeah, it, it is. And, and there's just so many exciting things like happening at Zoom Info too. I, I know, I knew when I joined the company, like it was going to be a crazy pace. There was a lot of expectation. Um, you know, the leadership knows they have certain goals they have to hit. But the the senior leadership here, like they have a vision for this company. And they when when they say they're going to get it, they they mean it. Like they, there's not this company doesn't just talk like they, they really take action. Uh, and a couple of things that in the past year I've noticed, like we've had a lot of like product advancements just over the last year. Um, we've made acquisitions over the, over the, just in the last couple of months, we made a couple of acquisitions for tools that just make our platform that much better. Like our CEO constantly talks, like we want to have this like overarching, like, all-in-one world-class go-to-market platform that because our our platform we have all this great like data intelligence all this great data that helps other companies you know um, sell better and, and just you know reach their goals but we realize like we can take ourselves to the next level if we use this this data intelligence platform we have and just like add more to it we can be this one like one-stop shop for every um for our clients, like whole go-to-market strategy. So we, I remember the CEO talking about that when I first got here and a year later, we made so many strides towards it. And then um, as exciting too, as like all that's happened on the product side for us to grow, what's really stood out to me and what's really most exciting for me is the steps the company's taken towards diversity, equity, inclusion. 
I mean, we all saw in 2020, you know, everything that was going on, um, the social justice movements, everybody, this is just demand, like we have to do better as a country, companies have to do better. It's, we have a long way to go. And we all know that. And every, and every company, you know, was, you know, people put out statements like, yeah, we're going to start, we're going to do better. We promise we're going to, we're going to make stretch towards being more inclusive. And I mean, I, I can't, I don't have data around how many have like actually made like significant steps, but I feel like there's been a lot of talk and very few actually walk in the walk and Tuminfo has made huge strides towards it. I've, I've seen it firsthand since I got here. We have a program that, he, that he immediately started last year where specific, um, we, our HR team has like we have HR business partners for each department and each business partner reached out to like minority groups within the organization to set out a path for career growth immediately. Like we did, they acknowledged like, hey, we don't have a lot of representation across like our different minority groups in leadership positions. Number one, not, not even in like the director VP level. So like we need to, we need to fix that. Like we need to make sure the people we have right now, number one are set on a path to where they can get to that. And then we need to look when we're hiring on the outside for these positions, we need to make sure it's like a broader um, scope. We even, we even added a recruiting tool to our platform and one of the features of it is to like for recruiters to be able to go into our platform and use a filter to, to uh, and filter specifically like minority groups when they're recruiting. And and so like just adding that to our tool, it just shows like we, we mean what we say. Um, and our senior leadership is always talking to like, you know, different employees and just and just asking like, hey, like, how are things going? Like, you know, we, we started these initiatives. How are they going? I think checking the progress is the most important thing. You can you can get together over the course like of like a week or month and just make this plan, but like if you're not actually doing anything or checking in on it, like then you just wasted your time. So the fact that senior leadership is frequently checking in, like, hey, how are we progressing? Uh, what else can should we be doing? You know, how are how are you is everyone doing here? And and they're they're keeping everybody honest on like the HR side and also like the different uh, leaders across the company. And they're also asking the question to like the employees themselves, like, you know, we're hearing this from like leadership, we're hearing this from HR, but like, are you seeing it? You know, this is making sure like it's happening. Um, and that's exciting for me because I, we recently, I think it was, I forget which media publication it was, just released, I w- it wasn't for, it was maybe it was Wall Street Journal, released like a, a list of like the top 20 CEOs of like enterprise companies um, based on like what their minority employees have to say about them. And ours, uh, ours made the top 10, like our CEO made the top 10 in that because it essentially was a list of like, hey, these are the CEOs that are actually like listening to their employees and really taking steps towards diversity and inclusion um, and, and not just like, you know, lip service. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is great to hear because you're right. Because from an outsider's perspective, last year, as I mean, it's always been a problem, but last year when it became an unignorable problem for a lot of people, there were a lot of statements released, a lot of promises made. And now like things have cooled, attentions go elsewhere. It's like, okay, what's actually being done? So it's, it's great to hear that you're seeing that within your company. Yeah. And, and um I have, a, I have a couple thoughts and a question. <clears throat> so I, I, I love this. I, as someone who was 
as a as a white guy in business that collaborates with a ton of companies and advises a ton of companies on brand and messaging, I was telling every CEO that I could catch before they did it not to post on LinkedIn. That white CEO, like their long message, insisting upon themselves about what they were going to do for DEI. This is just my personal opinion. I believe that it is better to do the work in the background and let the work show up in the world than be like, yeah, you know, George Floyd moved me and I'm going to change. Well, it's not about you. So shut up. So like that, that's, that's my view. Uh, and it just really missed the mark for me when I saw so many people that were white on LinkedIn writing really long messages about like, we need to do better. My thing was like, so my advice in back rooms with CEOs and, and folks that pay for my counsel was just do the work in the background. Like, I'll help you. Like, let's co- you know, connect with these guys. You know, there's a bunch of, created a consortium that's doing X, Y, and Z. For example, support resilient coders. Get more black and brown people uh, the skills to, to be technologists in the Boston innovation economy. Do stuff like that. And let change and impact come into the world that you're a part of. Um, talk is cheap. Don't tell people what you're going to do. Just show people you did it. Uh, that's sort of my mindset on it. As a white guy, trying to be mindful and like empathetic. Uh, I'm curious, as a black man in America, what if, if you have any comments on sort of what I just shared? Like, how did you feel in general the the business culture and you know you're someone pretty digitally savvy so i imagine you were on linkedin in particular like how did that stuff you know strike the right chord or the wrong nerve with you when you saw everyone just chiming in with their pov um over the last year yeah i think uh like you just said all these long long messages and these statements being put out my my one I've always kind of had an issue with like generic statements. They all end up just sounding the same. Um, yeah. You know, if people with like good PR teams that just write up the right things that are, you know, diplomatic um, yeah. and you read like, like after reading a bunch of them, I'm like, did they even write that? Like, you know, did, like do they know, even know what exactly what, like, like what they're saying? Like, did they just, are they just doing this as a formality so you do start to really wonder, okay, like, cool, you've made it, you made it clear that you're, you're thinking about it. So I guess I'll give you credit there. But like, like you said, like, what are you doing though? Like, it's easy to say we're going to make a change. But I remember, I remember the one that the first one statement or message that stuck out to me to where I saw like a company really doing thing was actually, interestingly enough, um, Audi, the car company, yeah. like, they have like their USA headquarters and they had put out, they didn't just put out a statement. They had this, um, this really long like document, like you had to like download it and it laid out like step-by-step everything they were going to do, how they were going to monitor it. Like, and it was it's something that like, I think a lot of people are probably like, Oh my God, this is so long. I'm not reading it. But I was like, no, you know, I want to see what, what exactly they're saying. If they, if they have this super long document and it's just a bunch of nonsense, then that's really disappointing. But no, it was really good. I remember Rick reading that and thinking to myself, like, okay, 
this is what I expect to see. This is what I want to see. Like, not just like, oh, like all these bad things are happening. We'll do better. It's like all these bad things are happening. We're not just going to tell you when to do better. Here is exactly. And, you know, they waited. The fact that they, they didn't just, it wasn't like the immediate like response to the situations and, and put out a statement. It was like they waited a few months. They actually thought about what they were going to do before they put out anything. Um, and, and I actually appreciated the companies that did that, right? The ones that, you know, probably had something brief at the, uh, when, when incidents happened and then, and then like a month or two later, released actual action plans. Seeing action plans was what I liked. And I just wish more companies like had thought to do that. Um, and like you said, to those CEOs, like do the work in the background and then when you're actually, when you've actually done something, okay, then you maybe, maybe you can talk then. Like, you know, then, then you can highlight like, okay, we've actually done something. Now here's, here's what it is. Instead of saying you're going to do something and then like nobody hears from you again. Show, don't tell. Yeah. That's it. It's like, it's funny when you, it's like when you ask, uh, when you ask a marketer, uh, that's just like, it's like a rule I've, I've become to follow in, in marketing. It's just show, show, don't tell. Um, but I think in particular, it's sense of issues and you nailed it. Like these like diplomatic, almost like, well, you know, well, well planned out, um, posts that, you know, a lot of handlers like redlined and massaged, like that's not real. Yeah. That's like, basically the moment you're asking someone like me, Hey, what do you think about this? You, you got your answer. No, it's not authentic. <laughs> no, your your instincts were to check with me. So therefore don't post it, which is kind of like, that's a lot of times my instincts. I'm like, should I send this email? Let me sit on it. Oh, the reason I sat on that email, I shouldn't send it. I shouldn't say it. Um, yeah. I'm curious what you feel about having lived in, you know, light memories from, from Liberia, but just talking in terms of the United States, having lived in, in Memphis, having lived in Phoenix, having lived in Boston, uh, certainly having a great experience at ZoomInfo right now from a DEI perspective. How do you feel Boston does in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, and good, bad, and ugly, just like free, free, like how, how much were you seeking a company in Boston that had the type of mindset that sounds like your CEO does, which by the way, you have to get me that article for the, so we can include it in the, yes. the post. Cause that's great. Like minority employees speaking up saying, you know, these are this, my CEO is a great CEO in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion. That's awesome. Um, but the zoom info is in every company. And I'm curious, like, was that a main piece of criteria for you and the company you found to work for? How difficult was that to find? And just in general, what do you, how, how are race relations in Boston? Um, how do they compare to Memphis and Phoenix? Yeah. So in the, as far as on the part about what I was really seeking, um, my, 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 my biggest folks, I'm always thinking about like, all right, what is, what's, what's, you always think about culture, like what, what are these people like? What's the management like? Um, am I going to hate my life there? So yes, there's always that talk. Luckily, I had people that I worked with in the past that were already here and could vouch for it. And the people that I trusted that could vouch for like the, the culture of the company. So that made the, the decision to, to, you know, apply and join Zoom Info uh, much easier. Um, and then within, within Boston right now, I think it's one thing that I've realized, you know, growing up in the area, um, working 
in in like corporate world here, it very much feels like everyone is just used to the people they've been around, and it's just, it's almost like this. I don't I wouldn't call it ignorance, I and mean, and it's more like okay, like this is what I'm comfortable with. There's no need for anything to change. Like no one's almost people are like blind to to the exclusion that's going on. I it's, use it's I like, like to use the word naivete because like I yeah. like like it's like a softer word for ignorance, but I'm with you where it's yeah. like it, where people are just a bit naive to like yes. the their sort of um, continued sort of maybe slightly more narrow ways being therefore complicit in an overall like societal norm that is negatively impacted the negatively impacting the ability for groups to kind of like cross pollinate or just like yes. sort of cohabitate exactly that that is what i feel like happens here and it's almost like you know you ha- you've had you've had an environment where in the corporate whether it's tech or finance whatever it's like ran by like rich white people it's a continued they're, they're then connecting their friends people they whether the people they know people they've their colleagues from before it's like it's this cycle of okay these are the type of people that are getting the jobs getting put in in you know great situations based off the connections based off this cycle of like we just they're just comfortable with each other and i think it's not that people are actively like keeping out other races it's they're also not actively trying to like amplify the like other uh the voices of other races and trying well, to put those people in in a, a position so it's like this would be like oh yeah like i have nothing against like you know black people or hispanics or asians or or other races but at the same time it's like they're not doing anything to to really like open up their minds and, and bring those people in and then try to they'll be like okay like this this other white person like i know them I like them. I trust them. That's what I'm going to focus on and, and just ignore everything else. Um, so like I said, it's, I don't think it's a matter of intention. I think is like the, what you use is just like naive to it. They just kind yeah. of think like, yeah, things, and a lot of people don't think there's an issue and that's the problem. Like no one's ever really told them this is an issue uh, and, and really force them to stop and be like, Oh wow. I've never really done anything to be a champion for like someone another race and, and and to really like bring them in to like you know positions of, of of power and to really then help them introduce me to more people um of their race and and, and really create this atmosphere of where we're now opening up like you know whether it's positions or networking opportunities to a whole scope of like different races so i think that's the issue in boston right now everybody's just comfortable with things that have worked for them uh mm-hmm. and not really and there hasn't been enough of a willingness to stop and really just, you know, let, let everybody else into the room, you know, and, and, and let everybody else in the, you know, show that, yeah, we can do this too. I, I think I was talking, I was talking, I was talking to one of my colleagues who started the same day with me at ZoomInfo. He's, he's an HR, he's black as well. And his, he, he was brought into ZoomInfo to help with like, you know, going recruiting, like, you know, other African-Americans, like other races. Um, he is like the diversity recruiter, um, and I was telling him, I was like, can you find some for like marketing? I'm the only black person in marketing. Here. <laughs> like, and and, and it's, it's kind of been a thing for me uh, throughout my whole career. I think I had one other, um, I was one other black person in the marketing department at the Suns. Uh, and other than that, I've never had another, I've never been in the marketing department with another black person before. I've been the only one every single time. And 
I know, and it's something that there is, there's someone make the argument was like, well, you know, the interests in like B2B marketing isn't there in the black community. And I mean, there is an argument to be made for that, but at the same time, it's like, how can you say that though, when you are actively like, if you're actively seeking and trying to find the people that are interested yeah. and then get it once you, and then get them in. And then you also, because what that does, if they, like for me, if I go and rave to like all my black friends about how much I like B2B marketing and they're thinking like, oh, like that sounds cool. And like, then they get into it and then they're talking to other people about it. It's, it's, it's almost like you have to get it started first before you can really open up that talent pool. Like, yeah. So that's also, I mean, it's kind of a, I find that to be an ignorant statement to just give a catch all and say, this group of people doesn't, they're not in the B2B marketing. Like it just, that's just a cop out. And that's quite frankly, bullshit. Um, I have an intro for your um, diversity recruiter at Zoom Info. Um, Have you heard of Black Tech Pipeline? I have uh, actually very recently. um, Yeah, because recently I have done a lot looking into Yeah know what organizations are there for like you know yeah uh, black people in tech so paris chandler is the founder of black tech pipeline and i've had her on the podcast and she's wonderful um she's uh, originally from cambridge and she i put her in touch with a company recently out in san diego um that was looking to improve um the diversity of their organization and it looks like they might enter into um, a nice partnership. So she's a good person to connect with. Um, tends to lean a little more on like coders and technologists, but I think has like more broadly has marketers and stuff. Cause then you have groups like resilient coders that are like purely focused on coders. Um, there's another uh, company, Martel Metellus, who actually just moved out of Boston, but he has a lot of Boston talent connected to him called Soko S O K O. Check that one out. Uh, I think it's like join join soco.com or .co. But there's a couple of these I've discovered. I'll share I'll share with you. But if if you want a direct intro, if you get if you haven't met her and you want a direct intro to Paris, um, be happy to make that. Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm always looking to. So when I was at Acquia, I was just convinced that there were no other black people in tech. To be honest, like like I didn't see any, and I just like well, I guess like I don't like I and I was too young at that point to really like think okay maybe that's because no one is really like I connect I got connected to that job through someone that had worked with me and could like advocate for me right mm-hmm. and for me as for me I just along the way I have and I'm now realizing I need to seek out other black people in tech advocate for them I you know people especially that are just entering like the the industry and because it's, it's almost like this thought of, like we got to help each other because no one's like doing it for us but you know we i really just as anybody i can get to just you know try to to help me boost those efforts it's just get because i i love yeah. this industry honestly like obviously i love sports and like we talked about that but tech is awesome like you know it's yeah it teaches you so much you realize like how, like what what is possible in in the modern world um and I just think it's it, it is an, an, something that would be interesting for Black people if they knew more about the opportunities. You know, the, the education isn't there, the awareness isn't there, um, and that's on everybody to really like bring that um, into yeah. the, the various communities. There's a lot of um, former athletes and and energy in tech, and there is, and a lot of like I mean, that discipline you you had discipline before Memphis, and then you had like a whole other level of D one athlete discipline 
from Memphis and now like you're a unicorn marketer. It's that simple. Like that's, and then a lot of great, though, some of the most successful people I've met in business have were really good at, even just at times really good high school athletes. Uh, just, you know, and, and our practicing athletes, they keep themselves in shape. They just have discipline in their lives. Um, there's been, as you can imagine, cause I do a lot more behind the scenes than I want to do publicly more and more, the more mature I get, the less I post on social media. Um, <laughs> that, is a, that is a ledger of history that, um, I contribute to appropriately and by appropriately, I mean, very lightly in the background with a lot of the people I've met through Boston speaks up and kind of adjacent to it. Some of the people I've mentioned to you and many more, like there's interesting ways where we're, I am looking to activate the Boston speaks up platform in Boston in the not too distant future and have more, have a pretty like strong DEI backbone to it. Right. And I think Zoom Info sounds to me like a great sort of partner in some of the things we're thinking about doing. Like there's there's a venture studio that I won't mention right now, but it's just like there's a venture studio that's interested in and is already connected to resilient coders and wants to connect the black tech pipeline and wants to connect with some other orgs and like have unique sort of like tech event programming in Boston that is like just black and brown led. Um and I'm, I'm like, I talk to so many people like it. I don't know if you ever heard of this one. So, so one day I get a pitch for Boston Speaks Up. I don't know, 30 episodes in, maybe 18 months ago. This is two years ago, maybe before the pandemic. And it's from Snap Inc. And I was like, Snap Inc.? Like, I was like, is this spam? I'm like, is this actually? I was like, oh yeah, so Snap it switched to Snap Inc. No, it's someone from Snapchat. And they're pitching me one of their official lens creators, um, part of this innovation group of Snapchat, and they live in Lawrence, Massachusetts. And actually, sorry, they live in Methuen, Massachusetts. And they, the person pitching me didn't know I'm from Methuen. And they do a tech um, coding boot camp for kids in Lawrence. And I was like, sold. Um, <laughs> and it turns out the, the, the man's name is Roman uh, Hackes. And he's, uh, he's an immigrant from, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, the Dominican Republic. Uh, moved here when he was like 17. It's been a couple of years since I talked to him. I've touched base with him a couple of times, just lightly on like social and over text. But he's like teaching kids at, at Lawrence Public Library, like how to like work with zeros and ones, but like create like lenses that end up in a Snapchat app so they can experience how tech can impact like a consumer app that they're familiar yeah. with, just as an example. And then he's got this band of like, like tech, um, sort of black and brown uh, technologists that are in payroll, Lawrence, Methuen, Lowell, and they're, that's who Tech for Hood is. And they do these little like pop-ups like all throughout the Merrimack Valley. Mm. But then they don't know, you know, they don't, they're not connected to Resilient Coders or Black Tech Pipeline or like the Boston tech scene that well. And so there's a lot of opportunities, I think, for companies and for companies like Zoom Info that are this. If, if it sounds like there's, you know, there's a bit of showing and not telling, and like walking the walk and not just talking the talk. There's opportunities to like help string this stuff together and doing some like really good like connectivity programming, certainly digitally, but I think also like IRL, and then creating pathways for for kids and young people or even older people who maybe didn't go to. To, to college from these communities, like in the Merrimack Valley, to understand too, like tech isn't that far away. 
um, to end this riff. Like I was in an Uber one time, like coming back from the airport in Boston. And my driver was like a really sharp kid from, from Lowell. He's like 25 years old. And he was talking to me about tech and I was telling him, like, he's asked me what I did. So I was telling him about my trip. Um, and he's like, wow, it's so made It's so crazy. What's going on in Boston. Like, you know, I have a lot of siblings. I help my parents care for my, my family. Like, you know, I have a great life with my family in Lowell, but I, I just, I never had an opportunity to pursue a career in tech and it might as well be, you know, 3000 miles away on the other side of the country. And I'm like, Oh, are you familiar with like hub week? And like, the, and no, I'm not. And it's just, there's this like lack of, there's this, there's this improved connectivity. Um, I think Boston still can, can seek just in what exists. Like there's disparate pockets of great, there's these little nodes of like amazing things happening everywhere. And I've discovered like a sliver of it. And, but that sliver of it is like dozens and dozens and dozens of things. And it's, and there's a lot of opportunity to kind of connect that stuff. So guy putting us on, on the record live with the audience and saying, we should work on some stuff together because I think it'd be really cool because, you know, some guys from Methuen just like trying to make, make our community a more, you know, connect, you know, connected, accessible, um, and inclusive uh, place. Yeah, I, I agree. And then this, this, this is where it starts. So like you, like you said, you have these different groups that are trying to advance like minority groups, but they're not even connected. And then so yeah. the people that they might be talking to won't know about all these other groups that exist. So if we, if we just, just bring it all together, that's, that's just, yeah, that, that's just a, a good start to, to kind of open up everybody's mind, the people that are already in the position to really make a difference. They, you know, being able to open up their minds and really introduce them um, and connect them with everything. Like the, the talents there, like I think we mentioned earlier, um, people saying like, oh, there's not interest. Like now like, you know, the interest is there. We all know the interest is there. We just got to go looking for like these groups that are trying to get into the scene um, and just educate and make, and the awareness needs to be so much better. I, I think like, I remember at Acquia, like we had people who would go to these different events, whether it were for like, different colleges um, or like these groups within Boston for young, young people that wanted to be in, in tech. But like, I mean, if you go to like, I don't know, you go speak at like Boston University or Boston College or MIT, like you're really only going to get a certain like amount of, like that doesn't do anything as far as expanding your reach across different minority groups um, or just going to the same events where the same type of people were invited to uh you're just kind of keeping it hidden from the from the ones that that you, you think you're trying to find um so yeah just I, like you said just just getting everybody to just connecting all these different groups together introducing them to the companies and whatnot i'm i'm, I'm excited for it it's something that i know i've I, I i love like for me my specific job like i like it and i know like not everybody's gonna love it but i love talking about like my company talking about what it does um and people are just like wow like that's really interesting and i talk about and it leaves me on these tangents talking about other like tech companies that i've been introduced to and i, I talk about that with like other black people or, like other hispanics like other, other minority groups and they're just kind of like never really like looked into that never really like thought about that um and it's like well can't blame you you never really had anyone to introduce you to it like it's yeah. because because the ones that know about it don't want to share and you know you just never really had, I guess, 
you only know what you know. So yeah, I don't know. yeah, I'm excited no. to do more of that. <laughs> Me too. I think the next hang needs to be IRL with a whiteboard, and I think we should like share ideas and list out the different kind of organizations and and ideas against like connecting those organizations. I also have this vision in the future and 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 maybe and Keel joins us when if, if and when Keel's like in the state when we do this. But I have I envision Zach and Guy like back in Methuen talking to Methuen High students. Like that's something I've wanted to do for a while. I don't know if you've done that, but like and then maybe syncing up with like Roman and Tech for Hood and trying to like also bring like almost kind of almost creating like a horizontal layer of like um, connectivity into these orgs, but certainly going back to our roots and, and to your point, like you only know what you know. So like might as well share what we know, what we've learned with a community of people that we feel, you know, um, some, some loyalty and appreciation to. Yeah. I I'm, I'm, I'm all in on that. That's, that's definitely been my focus these days. And yeah, let's, let's, let's definitely discuss that more. Cool. By the way, it flew off your tongue when you said wife earlier. For everyone listening, that's only a couple weeks in, right, Keel? Did you notice that? I, I was going to point it out, but the conversation was going so yeah. well. And uh, I wanted, because I was curious if it still feels weird saying. I always hated the word fiance, so I was yeah. happy to say wife, but how do you. <laughs> I actually, very similar to you, Keel. I, I think fiance was just like, okay, like that was cool when we first got engaged. Two years later, like I was like, I'm ready to say wife. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm um so yeah, it's it's something as soon as as soon as it was officially you known for the wedding, I was just like I was like, Yeah, wife, wife, I can this is easy. As it's um but I mean everything I think we've we've been together for a while now and you know, sure you guys can attest to this. You you just you get so used to each other, you kind of already feel like you're in kind of in that married life before you even get married and you're already you're locked like, you're already yeah. locked together yeah. in like the best ways. Yeah, the, the the only thing, although she she will call me out, the, like there were a couple of days during our honeymoon where like we were we were at a resort and we would like go out to eat and like I'd be walking out of the the room and she'd be like, "Are you forgetting something?" And I was like, "Oh, my wedding ring!" <laughs> like uh, remember to put the ring on like yeah. every day. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm I haven't forgotten since, but that was that that was like two times. I was just like, okay, this is the one big difference now. Is like when I'm yeah. getting ready, put that thing on. <laughs> yeah, it's an adjustment. Yeah, I just keep mine on. Um, <laughs> now, where was the honeymoon? So it was in it was in Jamaica. Wedding and honeymoon were both in Jamaica. That's we right. um we just stayed there, moved to we got married on a resort and then moved to a different resort a couple of days later. Spent the like, nice. four days, uh, and then came back home. It, it's it's kind of like a mini moon. We weren't we weren't planning on it until like the last minute because we realized like you know the places we really wanted to go weren't really like fully opened up to guests yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're, we're hoping in the next within the next year to just get like a like a week or so off and actually like go somewhere else in the world because we're both we both love traveling. Um, she's been to quite a few countries. I've been to a few countries and trying to just expand that more. Um, yeah, goes back to what we said about just kind of like being open and, and and trying to always learn about other people and be able to interact with the people. So I. I Honestly, if if I could, if I had the time and the money, I'd I'd be all across the world all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you never go to a new place and come out worse for it. You never meet a new type of person, and because, like, I mean, you could say, I mean, you could explore your own city, your own country for the rest of your life, yeah. and always meet new types of people. But yeah. it's never, it's never a bad thing to accumulate 
more new. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Zach was always much more adventurous than me and always had a much more of a, uh, um, ability to kind of approach with confidence, new things. And I'm glad that I eventually was able to, uh, imitate that. <laughs> you've, you've taken that in, in, in your own beautiful grant direction with, with all your abroad travels and living over the last couple of years, which I recommend listeners if they haven't yet to check out the Kielser video podcast and hear, hear about Kiel's time, uh, Kiel's time abroad. Um, guy, this has been a pleasure, man. I, I feel like we actually have some like really interesting, um, like, I feel like we have like a, like a project or something meaningful we're going to work on together too. Um, excited to share this conversation with the community, excited to hang out and kick it. Yeah. Um, have to get you out of Dorchester and get you out to the Burbs. You have to you have to come check out Beverly. Yeah, wife. Yeah. I told you actually last time we chatted, like you you and your wife come for a beach day. You know, come yeah. do a little cookout in the backyard. Yeah, Beverly Beverly's cool. I've been there a few times. So my my dad actually grew up not too far away. He grew up in um, Salem. It's not too far from Beverly. So he, yeah, we'd always go through like the whole North Shore when I was younger. And yeah, that, that area is awesome. So I'll definitely have to come out there. And you know, most of my so it's interesting, like so many of my friends still live in the Merrimack Valley or they, they bought houses in the Merrimack Valley or Southern New Hampshire, which is still the Merrimack yeah. Valley. Yeah. In, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm back there a lot, but I definitely, uh, yeah, I'm trying to do this, you know, just enjoy, enjoy the city for one last time. I'm, but, you know, wife and I definitely planning on when we, when we purchase a house, it's going to be going to be out there in the burbs somewhere. So. Yeah, I'll come out there with you guys for sure. Definitely got to hang. I'm, I'm, I miss you guys. <laughs> I miss you too. And we'll, I'm look. I will. I will lead your recruitment trip for the North Shore, Cape Ann okay. specifically. I got. Okay. I have a pretty efficient uh, uh, recruit recruitment day that I you know half day. Give me a half a day. Okay. You won't want to live anywhere else. I wind you okay. all. I wind you all. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. That'll be the next big move for you. Liberia yeah. to Methuen, Methuen to Memphis, Memphis to Phoenix, Phoenix to Boston, Boston to northern suburbs. <laughs> there you go. Guys, this has nice. been a pleasure, man. Th- thank you for taking all the time today. I appreciate you going long. Yeah, not a problem. I, I enjoy this a lot. Always love speaking to you guys. And yeah, looking forward to talking to you guys, see you guys again. Um, thank you for having me. Thank you, Guy. Thanks, Guy. Take care. You too. All right. Cheers. Cheers, Boston.